Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The religious leaders have fired their best shots at Jesus. Three questions, three answers. You'll recall that the religious leaders were testing Jesus in the hopes of finding a reason to accuse him or trap him or divide the people's loyalty against him. Three questions, one about responsibility to pay or not pay taxes. The question about eternity to resurrect or not resurrect, which betrayed the religious leader's ignorance of God's word and glorious power. Then there was the question about priority. Out of all of God's revelation, which commandment is the most important? And now it's Jesus's turn. He will ask a question that on the surface and at first reading seems to be the least interesting question of all. But in fact, it's the most interesting question of all. Because it's a question about Jesus' identity. And by necessity, our destiny. If Jesus is David's Lord, then he's the Lord of all. If Jesus is David's Lord, then all the previous answers or the previous answers offered by Jesus hasn't just simply been a person speaking, but God speaking. And so the question, of course, is, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? We can't overemphasize the importance of the question. You can afford to be wrong about a lot of different things. But you can't afford to be wrong about Jesus. You've heard me say this repeatedly. You can be wrong about certain things, but... You can't be wrong about Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're right about. If you miss who Jesus is. The answer to this question is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between darkness and light. It's the difference between forgiveness or remaining in our sin. It's the difference actually between fellowshipping with God throughout all eternity. Or being forever separated from God throughout all of eternity. And that statement might frighten you. It might annoy you. But the truth is Jesus is the central figure in human existence. And so it begs the question, what do you think about the Christ? 
And so we begin with the identity question. Look what it says. Who is the Christ? In verses 41 and 42 at the beginning of the, of the verse, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? At first blush, you might think this question is personal. But it really is doctrinal and theological. Jesus is going to ask the questions, and perhaps again the most important question ever asked, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And again, why does Jesus ask this question? Is he trying to stimulate debate? In part, but most of all, the question is intended to reveal the heart and the attitude of the person being asked. We quite literally divide human history before Christ and after Christ. And where was Jesus when he asked these questions? In the temple. You'll remember it's Tuesday. It's the last week of his life. In Mark chapter 12, verse 35, it says, quote, Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Luke's gospel says there was a large crowd of people there. In Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 46, there it says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes. Mark's gospel says, quote, The large crowd listened with delight, unquote. He is quite literally days away from a cruel and painful death that will be punctuated by a glorious resurrection, the Lord Jesus is asking the religious leaders a direct question about what they believe about God's Messiah. Whose son is he? He isn't just simply making reference to history or biology or genealogy. He is asking who has the right to lay claim to the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And to be honest with you, I've spent most of my life reading about Jesus, researching about Jesus, reflecting on Jesus, teaching and preaching Jesus. And look at the inadequate answer that they give at the end of verse 42. They said to him, the son of David. The answer is, of course, correct. The Messiah had to be the son of David. The overwhelming testimony of the Old Testament bears witness to their answer. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, where we read, the Lord speaking to David, quote, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David had several sons. And their sons had sons. They ruled and they reigned, but they certainly didn't reign forever. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 
It says, but you Bethlehem, Ipaphrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth is from everlasting to everlasting. Whoever, whoever or whatever this Messiah is, he, not she, must be a direct descendant of the king of David. The text makes it abundantly clear. This means that all messianic pretenders who can't trace their lineage to David must be rejected. Sorry, Sun Young Moon. He's Korean. He's not a direct descendant of David. And by the way, anyone laying claim to being a direct descendant of David, their claim has to be spurious since the genealogical records were destroyed at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The Messiah must be a direct descendant of David. The answer is correct but inadequate because there's so much more. The Messiah has to be the Son of God because his going forth is from everlasting to everlasting. What do you think about the Christ? It still remains the most important question. You can ask Jewish people. You can ask Gentile people. It, along with the second question, eventually has to be answered by everyone. Most people on the planet Earth give an incomplete answer concerning the Christ. They're confused. Some are just plain wrong about his identity. Some draw their understanding about Jesus from religious traditions, some from the popular media, from, some from literary novels, some from logic, some from personal reflection. Some believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. That's the position of the Mormons or the Latter-day Saints. Jehovah's Witnesses believe he's the Archangel Michael. Muslims believe he is a true prophet, a great prophet, but only a prophet. Some Hindus concede he was a great guru or an enlightened incarnation of Krishna. Some New Agers believe he's the ultimate enlightened being. Ancient alien theorists suggest Mary was impregnated by some traveler from a distant planet. Atheists, agnostics concede that Jesus is a person in history but believe the tales of his miracles and, and resurrection to be utterly untrue. What do the Jewish people think about Jesus? Well, there is no single Jewish view. Not all Jews are religious. The answers are as varied as they are. There are Believers and unbelievers. There are people who are observant and unobservant. In the first century, Jewish writers described Jesus as a magician who led Israel astray with evil powers. The Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate, who happened to be a nephew of Eusebius, the first church historian in the fourth century, wrote that Jesus was an itinerant faith healer who really didn't deserve the huge following that he had. In modern times, skeptics, agnostics, enemies of Christ are all across the philosophical board. 
No credible historian, believer or unbeliever, doubts the reality of a historical Jesus. There are some so-called self-described historians who might doubt and teach the historicity of this person, Jesus, but they're basically laughed at. The evidence for the historicity of Jesus is overwhelming. Most modern skeptics offer at least some compliment to the historical figure Jesus. The French philosopher Rousseau wrote, quote, when Plato describes the imaginary righteous man loaded with the, all the punishments of guilt, yet meriting the highest rewards of virtue, he describes the character of Christ. The life and death of Jesus are the life and death of a God, he writes. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous poet, held Jesus as the most perfect of all men who have appeared on the earth. Napoleon said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no man. I said it with a French accent just so, because if I actually said it in French, only a few people would understand. But... Whether nice or not so nice, all of these views have one thing in common. They're inadequate. They're incomplete. The view must incorporate all that the Old Testament says about Jesus. All that Jesus says about himself. All that has been revealed that he is God's Messiah and the Christ. And so we get to the infinite implications. Jesus is the son of God in verses 43 through 45. Look what it says in verse 43. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Adonai? It's the Greek word for Lord saying in verse 44, in the Hebrew from Psalm 110, verse 1, Jehovah, the Lord, Jehovah, said to Adonai, that is, my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 45, if David then calls him Adonai, how is he his son? This section will give us the crux of the argument that Jesus is making. Note, Jesus doesn't dispute their answer. Rather, in light of their answer, he asks another question. Clearly, whoever the Messiah is, he is the son of David. Now he is going to quote Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord, Jehovah, says to my Lord Adonai, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Jesus is asking the question, who is the second Lord? The Lord God is inviting someone, namely the Messiah, David's Lord, to sit at my right hand. How is that even possible? In Isaiah, it says, I am, in, in Isaiah 46 or 42, verse 8, and then again in verse 46, Verse 5 and 42, 8, it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. 
In Psalm 110, we're talking about someone being dangerously close. That's an idiomatic expression to sit at my right hand. It means that he assumes both the authority and responsibility of, of, of the king of the universe. The first commandment declares there's only one God, Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? The writer is basically saying, who can compare with God? No one. The religious leaders of Jesus' day believe that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Every Orthodox Jew interpreted this passage to be a reference to the Messiah. Only Messiah would be able to sit at the right hand of Jehovah God. Jesus is in effect asking the religious leaders, how is it possible that the Messiah or the Christ can be David's son and David's Lord? And of course, there's only one solution that makes sense, that becomes possible. All the religious leaders knew, but no one dared speak a word. The Christ, the Messiah, would somehow have to be human, a direct descendant of David, and divine, David's Lord. No son, biological son, would refer to their father as, no father would refer to his son as Lord. And this is part of the point that is being made. When, when David is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ has to be human. Christ has to be God. Now think about what's going on. God and man, this is unthinkable. This is unspeakable. This is unbelievable. But John the apostle recognizes this truth when he calls Jesus the root and the offspring of David. When he refers to him as the root, that means he's the source. He made David and the offspring and David made him. How is that possible? It would require God to acquire a second nature, a human nature. Psalm 110 verse 1 teaches that the Christ, the Messiah, has to be the Son of God and, the, and God the Son. And you should also note when Jesus is speaking, he says, how then does David in the Spirit this may not mean a whole lot to you, but for the critic and the skeptic and the doubter, Jesus believes that David wrote the psalm. He believes that David wrote the psalm under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That this isn't just simply David's conjecture or opinion or thought or idea. Jesus believes in the inspiration of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the accuracy of the scriptures. Even the religious leaders who Jesus is speaking to, none of them bring into dispute or question the accuracy, the authority, the integrity of the text. Not a single religious leader or scholar challenges Jesus concerning the authorship or the authority of the passage. 
the religious leaders are clearly confused, even in their own day, about the identity and the nature of the Messiah. In the sacred writings, the Messiah was pictured as both a suffering servant and a conquering king. It brought no end to confusion. How is it possible? In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the Messiah is pictured as a prudent servant in 52.13. A marred man, disfigured 52.14. The one who causes kings to keep silent, 52.15. A rejected Messiah. The text says, who has believed our report? The idea being, well, guess what? Jesus is making a statement and they don't believe him. Chapter 53, verse 1. The Messiah is called the arm of Jehovah, the tender plant, the independent root, the unattractive savior. He has no form or comeliness that he should be desired. He's the rejected king. He's the man of sorrows. He's the one who is, who is accompanied with grief. He is the severed branch, the stricken shepherd, the seeming felon. In what way? He makes his grave with the wicked, the messianic psalm says. He is the holy Lord. He has done no violence, neither is there any deceit in his mouth, Isaiah 53.9. In Isaiah 53.10, the Messiah is the sin offering. You shall make his soul an offering for sin. He's the prosperous servant. He's the satisfied redeemer. He's the one who receives the great reward. How? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. 53.12. Who is the Messiah? He's the conquering hero in 53.12. He's the drink offering. It says, he has poured out his soul unto death. He's the interceding priest made intercession for the transgression in 53.12. And in Psalm 110, he is called the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus in verse 45 says, if David calls him Adonai, how is he his son? And of course, the right answer is John the apostle gives centuries later as he finds himself on the island of Patmos and Jesus appears to him in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. He that has the key of David, he opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. How, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Because he is his son by birth and he is his Lord by nature. The key of David speaks of Power, authority, office. The person who has the key can unlock the door and then open the door and then reveal the contents. John is arguing because Jesus has the key of David. He is the one who opens the door and reveals the Father and tells us the truth about who God is and what God is really like. Later in that text, Jesus said, I have the keys of hell. That's Hades, the grave. Revelation 1.18. Jesus then claims, I have the power to lay down my life and also to pick it up 
He's making the claim that he can voluntarily lay down his life and then he can bring himself back to life. Now, I want you to think about this because the New Testament says that the Father raised him from the dead. In the book of Acts, it says the Spirit raised him from the dead. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm going to bring myself back from the dead. Jesus has the power in the past, in the present, in the future. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, for in him dwells pleroma. It's a Greek word which means the, the substance, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is Paul's way of saying whoever Jesus is and whatever Jesus is, he is God. He says, you are complete in him who is the head of principality and power. Jesus is the Christ having the key of David. But yet he doesn't reign over David's house. In Psalm 132 verse 11 it says, The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. A physical, direct descendant must sit on a throne forever. This is why Christians believe, not simply that Jesus lived and died and came back to life, but Jesus is going to come back. This promise has never been fulfilled. Jesus has never sat on the throne of David forever and ever, but yet he will and he must. Peter would later describe in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, of this salvation, speaking of Christ, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified. This is Peter's way of saying the Holy Spirit was inside of the prophets, testifying to the fact of the identity and mission and destiny of Jesus. When Moses wrote about Jesus, he was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Isaiah wrote, he was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. When David wrote, he was doing it by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is another name for the Holy Spirit, saying which he testified beforehand concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter is basically saying the reason why you haven't been able to reconcile the suffering of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus is because you haven't understood that he has to be a human being born in time and space who is God, forever God, the eternal God. Peter writes... In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, that they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into, unquote. This was Peter's way of saying, do you remember the book of Genesis? Do you remember everything that was written in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? 
Do you remember what was written in Joshua and Judges? As you march through the Old Testament, every single person, every single event, every single thing that has been revealed to you in the scripture is because Jesus is the object of history. Everything that exists and everything that has existed and everything that will exist, will exist is because of Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the glorious king. And so you've got to understand what a scandal this is. What a crisis this is for the observant Jew. We've had Watergate and we've had Irangate and we've had Monica-gate and we've had whatever gate you want to talk to about every little crisis and, and scandal. If I were to call this something, I would call it pearly gate. This is the scandal. How is it possible that Jesus can be both God and man? But let's put our thinking caps on just for a moment. Even in our culture and society, the unbeliever, the skeptic, the agnostic acknowledges, what if God could become one of us? There was a popular song in the 90s um, about a, a group that sang, uh, tell me all your thoughts on God. Well, if Jesus is both God and man, and if God from eternity could become a man, what might we expect? Would we expect an unusual entrance into this world? Would you expect this being to be without sin? Would you expect him to manifest the supernatural in the form of miracles? Would you expect him to be different from every human being who has ever lived? Would you expect him to speak the greatest words that have ever been spoken? Would you expect him to have a lasting and universal influence? Does that sound like anybody you know? Yeah, good answer. Jesus is the right answer. Who fits this description? Jesus, born of a virgin, announced and witnessed by angels. Did the New Testament writer just simply make up this unusual entrance? No, Isaiah predicted it hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 46, we read, Jesus saying, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why won't you believe me? Imagine if you said that. Imagine if you said, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I said that, hey, which one of you convicts Gino of sin? And all the hands, yeah, yeah, all the hands go up in the audience. Because everyone who's been at this church for any length of time has certainly watched me say something or do something or fail in some way. So there's a consensus. Gino's a sinner. But anyone who knows you, if I asked your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband, is your husband without sin? Which wife would go, my husband's without sin? Oh, there's no hands. All of you who have a wife without sin, raise your hand. Oh, all of you who have a child without sin, raise your hand. Oh, well, one hand went up. I want to see you after the service. Which of you has a friend without sin? 
Our sins and faults are endless. Jesus was without fault and without sin. The Bible writers mention no sin. Jesus' self-conscious purity is astonishing. Even his close friends, John and Peter, never saw Jesus' sin ever. It says, quote, in 1 Peter 2, 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, unquote. 1 John 3, 5, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin, John would later write. Even his enemies could find no fault in him. They had to fabricate charges against him. They had to pay a bogus witness to lie about him. Wilbur Smith writes, quote, 15 million minutes of life on this planet. In the midst of a wicked and corrupt generation, every thought, every deed, every purpose, every work, privately, publicly, from the time he opened his baby eyes until the time he expires on the cross, all approved by God. Never once did our Lord have to confess sin because he had no sin. Did Jesus perform miracles? He performed miracles in the natural realm, in the supernatural realm. Philip Schaap, perhaps the greatest church historian, said, quote, all his miracles are but natural manifestations of his person, and hence they were performed with the same ease with which he performed ordinary works. It was his way of saying, Jesus didn't have to sweat. He didn't have to try. He didn't have to work himself up. He didn't have to close his eyes and, and clench his teeth in order to generate a miracle. Jesus just simply did so. Even his critics, even the people who hated him and didn't believe him, Jewish writers like Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, who wrote in 95 AD, speaks of Jesus' magic arts. Remember the Sanhedrin accused him of being a magician. Even his critics didn't dispute the fact of what he had done. They simply disputed the source of where it came from. Around 110 AD, we hear of the controversy among Palestinian Jews whether they would allow healing in Jesus' name because apparently people were praying and experiencing healing in Jesus' name. Julian the Apostate, who was later the, the emperor, quote, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless anyone thinks it's a great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. They're acknowledging that it happened. The enemies of Jesus never denied his supernatural power. They simply denied its source. And the influence of Jesus is immeasurable. Jesus makes you choose a side. People can be indifferent. They can be uncommitted. They can be unconcerned about anyone or anything. But Jesus demands a response. What would you do if Shakespeare or Thomas Jefferson or Alexander the Great or Tyler Perry walked into this room? Some of you might say, oh, I would ask for their autograph. I would say, hey, I read your stuff. What would you do if Jesus walked into the room? Hopefully you would fall down on your face. Hopefully you would worship him. Hopefully you would kiss the hem of his garment and declare that you loved him with your whole heart. Napoleon wrote, quote, 
Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did they rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ built his empire upon love, and at this very hour, millions would die for him, unquote. H.G. Wells, skeptic, unbeliever, wrote, quote, is it any wonder that, the, that this Galilean is too large for our small hearts, unquote. Renan, skeptic, atheist, quote, whatever may be the surprise of the future, Jesus will never be surpassed, unquote. Critics, skeptics, unbelievers at least acknowledge there's something about this particular person. Who spoke the greatest words? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my, my words will never pass away in Luke 21, 33. Can you imagine any human being that you've ever heard speak saying that. Can you imagine a former famous president saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yeah, you're laughing because of how ridiculous that would be. Can you imagine anyone saying the words that Jesus spoke? The consistent testimony of the scripture is, he spoke, and they were amazed at his teaching. The Roman guard said, never a man spoke this way. Jesus is the outstanding personality of all of human history. The difference between Socrates, Plato, Aristotle is the difference between inquiry and revelation. The words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels are more read, more quoted, more translated, more represented in art, literature, music, film, media than of any human being who has ever lived. They're more loved. They're more believed. They're more translated. Because they are the greatest words that have ever been spoken. And what is the secret of their greatness? It's because they are a clear representation of the heart of God. When you hear Jesus speak... Your heart bears witness that the God that he's describing and the salvation that he's instructing and the wisdom that he's imparting comes from heaven. No human revolution, no war that has ever been waged, no ascendant culture can match the words of Jesus. Jesus has had the more most powerful influence than any human being who's ever lived. After 2,000 years, his influence continues to grow. Each day, people have a revolutionary experience with Jesus. The great historian Kenneth LaTourette said, quote, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect of history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on the planet. That influence continues to mount. Philip Schaff says, quote, this Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, without money, without arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as have never been spoken before or since, produced effects which reach beyond the realm of orator, poet, 
without writing a single line himself. He set in motion more pens, more volumes, more works of art, more songs of praise than all of the army of great men, ancient and modern. And so, we look at the inadequate response. Look what it says in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day, nor did anyone dare question him anymore. Are there answers to Jesus' questions? The answer is yes. The religious leaders are stunned. They're silent. They either could not answer or would not answer Jesus' questions. Their silence betrays the fact that their hearts were hard and empty, lifeless, barren. Their silence is also a tribute to the young rabbi who never went to a rabbinic school, who never had a famous teacher. The enemies of Jesus are going to duck out for just a moment. And they're going to stew in their silence. And as they're stewing in their silence, they think to themselves, Jesus has to die. Because he threatens them. Just like he threatens Every single person who refuses to come to grips with his true identity. Haven't you ever wondered why your family is so upset with you? Or disgusted by you? Or annoyed by you? When you walk into the house with your happy face and your sparkling eyes and your clean conscience and the knowledge that you're going to heaven and not hell. And you ask him a silly question. Hey, tell me what you think about Jesus. Just stop it. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And so I ask you the supreme question. What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? If you answer the son of David, your answer is correct. But it's incomplete and inadequate. If you say a man, even a good man, maybe even the greatest man... It still falls short. Again, you can be wrong about a lot of different things. But this is the one thing that you must get right. And by the way, you can remain silent. Some of you will answer the question and, and some of you will decline. There are those who will doubt, but no one doubts forever. Certain doubters are going to reject the evidence. They're going to reject the argument. They're going to reject all of the reasons, but compassion and concern requires us to give an answer for the hope inside of our hearts. And sometimes silence will bring about a moment of thought and reflection 
and consideration. And they'll think about what you're asking. For the believer, Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the subject of our life. He is light to direct us. He's the Lord that we obey. He is the shepherd. He is the master. He is the prize, quote, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that I might win Christ. Paul said, Jesus becomes the goal. He is the starting line. He is the journey. He is the finishing line. He's the way to walk in. He's the arms that carry us. His shoulders bear us. His bosom we rest in. His staff supports us. He is the propitiation to atone for us, the purifier who cleanses us, the mediator who acts out on our behalf. He is the one who removes our sin. He is our substitute. He's the consolation of Israel. He's the Lord's Christ. And yes, he's the son of David. And he's David's Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that for the person who doubts Jesus' identity, that they would reconsider, that they would take into consideration all that the Bible says about him. Not just pick and choose a specific statement. That they would believe all that Moses said about Jesus, that they would believe all that Isaiah said about Jesus, that they would believe all that David said about Jesus, that they would believe all that Jesus said about himself. And so, Father, we pray that we would be faithful men and women who would be prepared to ask the question, tell me, Tell me what you think about Jesus. And then be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the hope that's in us. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, all right.